When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, back to try to tell you what's going on in Westminster and why. MPs are back from their summer break and every party seems to be even more of a mess than when they broke up, of which more in a moment. First a reminder, in the next few weeks there are several chances to come and be part of the podcast. We're hitting the road during party conference season. We'll be in Liverpool on Sunday, September the 23rd asking have we reached peak Corbyn and on Monday October the 1st we'll be in Birmingham asking can the Tories survive and should they just go to mytimesplus.co.uk for tickets which are available exclusively to Times subscribers then on Thursday October the 11th join us for Red Box Live at the Cheltenham Literary Festival and then on Saturday October the 13th I'm doing a show called This Is Not Normal Uh, for details and tickets go to cheltenhamfestivals.com For now, we're back in the studio in the news building, home of the Times, where we've assembled a crack team of former spin doctors to diagnose the problems in their parties and what the prospects are for their long-term survival. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Overton, who was a press spokesman for Labour until just after last year's election. Vanessa Pine was a special advisor to Vince Cable in government. But first, back by popular demand, thanks to Ralph Dale, who posted a review on iTunes, I'm joined by Katie Perrier, former Number 10 Director of Communications to Theresa May, who was previously a media advisor to Boris Johnson. This is Katie Perrier. It's crunch time for Theresa May as the clock ticks down to Brexit and Tories line up to rubbish her plan. But she's got one thing going for her. Nobody's got a better idea. So, Katie, Theresa May went into the summer with everyone moaning about her Chequers Brexit plan. All the talk was of no deal. She was going to, one minute she was going to warn us of how awful no deal was going to be. Then they weren't going to do that because it might have sounded awful. And she's returned to uh, Westminster this week and we seem to still be in exactly the same position, possibly a bit worse. Yeah, it does feel a bit like Groundhog Day. I do feel sorry for her, though, because of the hand she's been dealt, really, and that she just carries on going. You do kind of you can admire her as much as I cringe when I saw the kind of African dancing. A lot of people kind of warmed to her. A I little liked bit. it. I thought, it was, quite I thought it was one of the best things she's done. I mean, that's yeah. against a low base, but I thought <laughs> I thought the African dancing was fun. Yeah, I think people did, did think you know. Hold on, we've seen someone that isn't you know just there to deliver Brexit. She she does have that kind of you know more fun side to her. But there's two schools of thought. Uh, that she's not ideologically linked to Brexit in a way that you know the Boris Johnsons are, so she will go and get the best deal possible. Uh, or hold on a minute, she never wanted it in the first place, and we're now getting to crunch time, and it shows that she hasn't got the kind of deal that that we want to, to get through. There's this kind of consensus going on amongst the Tories now that you know no one likes checkers. It's the worst of all worlds for everyone, and if she can't get that through the 
parliament and we know the parliamentary arithmetic is pretty bad for her then it's going to be hard to see how she can stay on her kind of point right now is that don't think it's an easy correlation between me boris johnson or someone else if it's not me it's jeremy corbyn and that's what's keeping her there and that's what these tory mps are thinking i cannot do another general election so there's no clear replacement leader boris has come out you know with his gloves off uh, it's game on. I was saying to people that no longer work for Boris that recently did work for him, saying, I'm surprised you haven't had a text message saying, it's game on, get back in place. We, you know, we're going for it. No, it was so, interesting. So his, his article, so having si- re-signed to write his column for The Telegraph, he then wrote largely a series of not terribly interesting columns, with the exception of the Burka one, which we might come on to later. Um, but then he's sort of back with a bang, Parliament's back, he launches into Brexit and Theresa May's checkers deal. But actually, there was nothing new in it. We know he doesn't like it. That's why he resigned. There was lots of very Borisy language. About- and it's beautiful language, actually. Some of it, not all of it, but some of it in terms of, you know, we're, we're driving our car, we're locked in the boot, we can't get, you know, all this kind of stuff. He paints a beautiful story and a wonderful picture but I do kind of go through these pieces thinking, okay, so what's the plan then? Yeah. What's the what, plan? What's your alternative? Yeah, what's the alternative? And there's people out there that think, you know, I was on Good Morning Britain yesterday and Piers Morgan was shouting at me saying, it's his time. Give him his, his time to show us, you know, what he what he led us to do. You know, he was a leader of that Brexit vote. Now it's time for him to kind of prove himself, to step up. We should put him in place. And I thought, oh, my God, Piers Morgan is, is supporting Boris Johnson for Prime Minister. It's uh, something that I was quite surprised about. Uh, and he did have his time. I mean, that overlooks the Others fact. are saying, he hold on a minute, you foreign, foreign secretary. Exactly. If he had a time, I mean, given that total disaster he made of the Tory leadership contest in 2016, he had his opportunity and he didn't even have the numbers to get on the ballot. My worry is, is that what kind of, every day you wake up and think, what fresh hell is this uh, when you are someone in, somewhere in the middle of a Conservative Party and you just genuinely want it to survive and do well? What state will the party be in once this hell is over? Who will want to vote for it, let alone join it? We've got problems this summer of entryism, which no one seems to care about. You know, no one's really talking about hospitals or tools or elderly care or mental health provision. They're just talking about Brexit. It's doing my head in. Mm. Paul, a party uh, split over Brexit and worried about entryism. Does that, does that ring any bells for you <laughs> and your time with the Labour Party? I just wanted to ask uh, Katie a quick question, which I genuinely love to know as someone that understands the Tory party a lot better than I do. Bowles has set out a, a plan which is a kind of, I guess, a transitional move. And if you're kind of someone who believes strongly in Brexit as a, as a project, as an idea... What does the party have against, or parts of the party have against this idea of, okay, we start with a Norway-style model and then we review it from there? Because surely by going for everything straight away, you run the risk of not getting anything. So I think it's Michael Gove who said, uh, let's not make perfect the enemy of good. Quite ones you've got to watch in the next few weeks and months. And so um, Liam Fox has always said, look, it's taken me 40 years to get people to agree to leave the European Union. I don't care if it's another four. I don't care if it's another five. The fact is, we've done it. And however long it takes and however slow it takes, we're going to inch forward to a position where I'd rather be rather than where we were. And I think that's quite a pragmatic kind of approach. Um, and, um, you know, we often think that Nick Bowles is doing kind of Michael Gove's bidding for him in terms of we are where uh, he sits. And, of course, he's got to be supportive of Chequers right now. But the fact that, you know, Boris gets to do all the running. There's certainly a Stop Boris campaign within Parliament right now. Mm-hmm. But also, I think there's a bit of a campaign which is, let's let you lot run out of steam, yeah. run out of puff, show you haven't got any answers, show you haven't got, you know, solutions to some of these problems. You know, we keep on going back to the fact that no one's got a real solution on Northern Ireland. Uh, and others like that, and then and then come forward with a pragmatic kind yeah. of approach. Give them enough. Uh, yeah, them exactly. Things. I think that we possibly could get to that point. So um, uh, I, th- I think that there's more 
in the party and a parliamentary arithmetic in the middle ground than there is at either side. What I do worry about politics more generally is that you've got this push to the left within the Labour Party, this kind of push to the right in terms of the, you know, idealistic Brexit. And then, you know, who looks after us in the middle? So I had a sort of, you know, fantasy scenario question for you, which is that if the parliamentary <laughs> arithmetic <laughs> isn't, isn't there... <laughs> It's getting personal now. Um, if the parliamentary arithmetic isn't there for any kind of deal, um, what happens? Because we're in constitutionally uncharted territory. Is there a sort of, and this is sort of, you know, West Wing political fantasy um, uh, world, the sort of Theresa May wakes up as a Remain sleeper and then says, and therefore we need a people's vote because there isn't a parliamentary solution to this. So second referendum, here we go. I don't think anything's off the table. She really, really doesn't want a second referendum. Yeah. She thinks it's highly divisive that when you go back on democracy, when you say to people, you have the power in your hands to make a decision about the future of the country. Oh, and by the way, we don't like your results. So we're going to change it. We're going to go back and ask you again. Yeah. Well, what, you know, what if we don't get the result we want that time? Do we keep on going back again and again and again? That's why I think that there's a major flaw in a second, you know, in a second world people's vote because I see the logic behind it. Let's put more meat on the bones and then offer it to people and see whether they like it. I don't think that people are going to go for it at all and, and therefore Theresa May is, is not keen on that. But will she choose it over getting fired? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's politics. To what extent do you think that within the Tory party it is actually softer than we think? Because there's all this sort of noise and the people who appear in the papers all the time. You've got, you know, and now you've got Boris Johnson and David Davis. You've got your Jacob Rees-Mogg's. And then, you know, if all else fails, you've got Andrew Bridget and it, you know, will we'll pipe up and say, you know, speak for the Brexiteers. Actually, the, the overwhelming majority of Tory MPs back to Remain, they mostly want an easy life. They want to go back to the stuff that you were talking about. What happens, do you think, if she gets a deal, brings it back to Parliament, do those numbers of so-called rebels, the hard Brexiteers, start dwindling because they just think this is a this is something we can, like you said, we are getting out. Do, are those numbers, because the Jacob Rees-Mogg's ERG talk about having 60 Tory MPs. Does that number come down a lot, do you think? I think it, it does. Every time I think that number 10 has done the maths and has really crunched it and understood <laughs> where their positioning lies because they've worked out that anybody's against this is a lower number than they have, they give in. They give in so quickly and yeah. so easily. Which makes me think that they're not secure on their numbers. You know, they're not concrete and they're very, you know, wobbly in terms of the support they think they have. People need to understand how far people will go within the Conservative Card Party MPs to prevent a no deal scenario. And only then, I mean, we've always said, haven't we talked about this in previous podcast, we've always said it's going to be lastminute.com, you know, in yeah. terms of the EU uh, always deal last minute. Look at the Greece bailouts and things. We will only know very last minute exactly how far people will need to go to save us from a no deal. Matt's doomed to be talking about Brexit until February at least. <laughs> yeah, unlucky. <laughs> yes. Um, the, uh, Paul, what about the, within the Labour Party? Because there's been a lot of talk about how on, you know, Labour have got these six tests for the government's Brexit plan, which has to be famously Barry Gardner said by bollocks. Do we start seeing some Labour MPs peeling off, either officially or unofficially, and just saying, look, whatever the front bench is doing, I think this is better than crashing out with no deal. And do they start sort of just voting or maybe abstaining on a on a deal because in the sort of national interest or because their constituents voted for Brexit, they just think, well, this is delivering on something and it's better than nothing. Back in July, there was a really interesting statement from Unite, which kind of passed by a little bit. But Unite basically said that nothing's off the table in terms of a, a people's vote and that whatever comes back to Parliament, it must meet those six tests. Unite were actually explicit and said... It will fail those tests. And at that point, we will call for a general election. With Labour and the TUC coming up soon, they've, they've got to 
put some wording together as well for conference and I think you'll find something probably almost identical to that. It'll be very, very difficult for the Labour Party to vote for any deal because, you know, those six tests, let's face it, are not going to be met. You can't keep the exact same benefits of single market and customs union plus having these kind of, uh, I think it's fair rules on, on migration. They will say to the government, no. I think Labour MPs, because of the way the party is split on all sorts of things at the moment will do it on their own conscience but we've already seen people like Gareth Snell for example Caroline Flint who are probably likely to vote for any deal I don't think there will be a kind of hard rule on, on what people in the backbenches will do but I think there'll also be a lot of pressure to vote against the government's deal because once you vote for it the government can quite rightly say well Labour in favour of this or you're in favour of this yeah, yeah. so uh, and I think they've already kind of some of them will have probably had their fingers burned with the article 50 vote because they'll have heard that coming back to them well you voted for this you started the, the, the countdown um, so I don't think there is a kind of hard and fast rule on it but uh, I suspect most of them will probably vote no and just before we move on, Katie, one of the more significant things I think that's already happened since we've been back is the number 10 slapdown of Boris. Asked about his article in The Telegraph, they came back, well, we don't need to respond because there's no new ideas in it and now's a time for serious leadership and a serious plan. Do you think we'll see more of that, that sort of trying to draw... It reminded me of when Gordon Brown said about David Cameron, now is not the time for a novice. This sort of going back almost to what how you know how you ran the, the leadership campaign. You know, this is the time for a grown-up who's going to sort all this out. You write your funny articles or whatever, but I've got a job to do. Yeah, I think we will see more of that um, in the next few weeks and months because it's a very frustrating time. I was talking amongst Tory MPs yesterday and they were saying, you know what, it's like an election campaign without an election campaign or it's like a leadership campaign without one. This is this is now kicked off. This yeah. is now happening, whether we like it or not. We don't want it to happen, but we are now in the middle of all of this. And I think that that's the most depressing thing of all, that this is going to potentially go on for weeks and weeks yeah. and weeks where mm. we are killing ourselves within our own party. And what does that do for the electorate? Do they go, oh, yeah, you're a smart bunch of people uh, that really know how to lead? Or, you know, you're like cats in a sack and you need to sort and it out. party conference is just going to be a beauty contest. Um, I can't swear on this podcast because my mother would not be proud. But yes, it's going to be a you-know-what show. It's going to be pretty horrendous. If I were Boris Johnson, I would absolutely take over the conference. I'd hire the biggest tour possible. Even if it's outside of the conference zone, they'll, they'll come for me. They'll, you know, it's like the Pied Piper. I would lead you through the streets of Birmingham uh, and show you the, you know, the wonderful <laughs> vision of my of the future under Boris Johnson and he will and he will pack out audiences and what they will do the media because why wouldn't you is compare you know very solemn faces within a Theresa May you know stark this is the most difficult six months ahead you know this is time for seriousness uh, time for real leadership and then you compare it to the cheering that, like we saw of Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury for Boris Johnson in another hall just down the road. And, you know, how can you compete against that? Let's move from one party conference that is likely to be lively and possibly out of control. Let's move on to the next one. And uh, this is Paul Ogner. The Labour Party had hoped to use the traditionally quiet summer months to paint an inspiring picture of a post-Brexit future with their Build It in Britain campaign. But instead, they spent most of it fighting off accusations of anti-Semitism. Now Parliament returns and the party faces a number of bitter battles on many different fronts. And that's just with itself. In my mind at the moment, I'm predicting that Labour's is going to be, it's going to feel worse as a sort of conference uh, when we head to Liverpool than the Tory one. The Tory one last year was very flat and there will be a lot of argy-bargy about Brexit. But the, the atmosphere that the past couple of Labour ones has been pretty nasty and this feels like it's being stoked up and this could be the same. Well, I think actually the, the delegates at this conference are likely to be more from uh, the left of the party. 
Um, so actually, you might find the opposite. You might find that it feels more invigorated than it has done in recent years. In recent years, you've had a lot of party delegates were, were more from the kind of the old school, if you like. Uh, and they did feel quite sullen affairs at times and, and, and kind of like there was a bit of a, like it was about to kick off almost at yeah, times. Yeah, there was that sort of friction in the hall and particularly sort of around the hall and the bars and all that sort of stuff. It's really been in the last year that momentum and, and, and the left have really started to be more effective at winning spaces in, in local constituency parties across the country. So perhaps you won't see that as much this year. You know, there are going to be a lot of debates. We've got the stuff about Tom Watson potentially not being being able to speak, and him saying, "Well, fine, I'll go off and speak somewhere else, wherever that may be." But actually, I think the, the overall atmosphere may be uh, more positive this year than it has been maybe in the last two. If you were a uh, Labour Party member that's considering leaving the party uh, over the recent troubles, wouldn't you kind of be tempted to go along to conference, sit in that audience, and stand up at the crucial moment and start giving it some to to the party leader? I mean, there is there is that which is if you're going to go out, go out and start a sort of reverse of the Kinnock when yes. Kinnock was sort of shouted down in the eighties. Kind of, I, I don't know. I think that there will there will be a, that would be a worry of mine if I was going as part of this kind of press entourage that I can control what's going on here and control what's going on here, but in the room itself, when it's meant to be full of supporters. How do I know that, that half of them aren't going to kind of stand up and make their voices heard? So let's sort of pick through the issues. You um, you mentioned in your intro anti-Semitism, Paul. This feels like this is something which has dogged Corbyn a bit, even from when he was running his, you know, when he first ran for leader. And it's just sort of built up and built up over this summer. sort of weight of evidence. And then it became focused around this row on the IHRA definition. Have you been surprised by the way it just hasn't gone away and the way the party's handled it? I think... Yeah, I've been surprised by I've been surprised by the amount of stuff, for example, that kind of first was prominent in the media two years ago that's kind of been recycled. But I think that comes down to the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has had these meetings with uh, the board deputies and and uh, the Jewish uh, Leadership Council, and they haven't gone well, and they have found him unwilling to budge on positions that they feel are really important. Um, on the IHRA stuff, there is a, a whole another row about that about freedom of speech my personal view is is labor should just adopt it and get a move on with it because i see it as not a kind of totemic thing that is going to solve all problems but as a journey the labor party mm. and the labor leadership will go on so that's happening uh, today actually with um with the nec voting on it the times did some polling recently actually of labor members and i was really surprised to see that 77 percent of labor members felt to some extent that it was a genuine problem within the party that's not always reflected on on twitter where it feels like a much more visceral row the Labour Party, just we have to get a handle on it. It's becoming ruinous to the party and its prospects. I mean, all of you have been in situations where your party has been in a pickle. I genuinely just don't understand why they didn't just accept it. Whatever they are, and I know that there's this intellectual argument about the fine points of the example. It's not even the definition, it's the example that's set alongside and whether that limits the criticism you can make of it. But once you've got in a situation where day after day after day, there are stories about how the leader of the opposition is racist and anti-Semitic, don't you just move to put a lid on that because politically it's damaging. The problem is it's not just any political issue <coughs> for Jeremy Corbyn or the people around him. It's the foundation of their politics is the idea that the West is a force for bad, uh, a force for disruption in the Middle East and that Israel is a big part of that. They feel that the IHRA definition as it stands at the moment with the examples added to it restricts free speech around criticism of Israel. And for them, that is a red line. 
I think this is more of a question of not indeed the politics behind it necessarily, but just as much the fact that Corbyn does not understand that time is not in his side. He feels he can take, just from the outside world, and I don't know him, so I could just observing, he feels he can take weeks to decide, have a meeting, have a bit of a chinwag, have a discussion here. Oh, yes, people aren't very happy there. Oh, yes, someone's got a lot of Twitter abuse there. That's not very nice yet. Does he, <laughs> does he think he's got all the time in the world? Well, weeks and weeks and weeks go past. I'm not, you know, I'm not Jewish, so I don't know what it's like, but I'm offended on their behalf that people feel that, that you know the state of our official opposition is bad for politics generally and i just think that it's a, it's a kind of judgment on not just the media cycle but on the fact that you know your leadership abilities to get a grip of a situation if you can't get a grip of this when the first crisis hits you as prime minister how the hell are you going to be able to get a grip of that and paul what about the mindset and the attitude towards the media. There was a time where front page print newspaper headlines again and again and again on an issue would force a political leader into doing something, even if ultimately they thought it was, you know, being pushed into or it was unfair or whatever. But you get ahead of it. David Cameron, I remember, did it when uh, there were front page stories about his father's tax affairs. He really didn't want to go in to talk about his dad, but he knew the only way he could do it and get ahead of it was he addressed his dead father's financial affairs in the House of Commons. But if your mindset is a dead tree press, it doesn't matter, it's all about social media, do, you, do they end up being blind to the impact that newspapers and the media are having? They There's, just don't feel the need to react to it. And it, then they end up thinking it's a sort of conspiracy. If you take uh, Corbyn's team at their own word, there was um, a really interesting article, it would have been January 2017, just after we came, all came back from Christmas, where the leader's office had briefed um, a publication saying that they were going to reboot Corbyn effectively, that they had they, they had taken their lead from what they'd seen from the Trump campaign and yeah. what had worked there. And that basically they had kind of this analysis that you could spend your time building up friendly relations with the Mail, with the Times, with the Sun, with other publications. But when it came to election time, that scorpion would sting you. And they just felt that there was no point in doing it, that it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the hassle. And I think that uh, general election campaign last year and then the result of that election has led to the leadership of the Labour Party uh, feeling hugely emboldened. And that is one of the main things that they feel that they called that absolutely right, that the uh, dead tree media uh, doesn't have the same impact it once did and they can get away with it. I would disagree with that. I know there is some stuff that says only 5% or whatever of people over the summer actually pay attention to it. But anecdotally, I've had people who have no interest in politics whatsoever mentioning it to me, uh, the anti-Semitism row. So... I'm not sure it's right, but certainly I think that is the attitude of the Labour leadership. I think even more so, there's almost a conscious extension of his brand now to reject the mainstream media. That that and, and I think that quite successfully taps into a kind of anti-establishment feeling in the country that politics is a bunch of yarboos shouting at each other and um, that the media circus that goes on around it is a soap opera reporting game and that actually Jeremy Corbyn's bypassing all of that because he's real and authentic and, and, actually that's, and, and know, it that sort is, of works for him in the same way it works Trump's for Trump. Aim. If you yeah. undermine... You know, calling everyone fake news and undermining well-known, respected brands, whether it's the New York Times or NBC or CNN or whatever it is, then the next time they've got a decent story which completely nails you, it just gets you can just keep rolling it up. So history didn't exist, right? Yeah. And there was one other uh, line from that uh, article I mentioned about kind of taking a lead from Trump, which was that uh, it was felt within the leader's office that. Uh, negative publicity was better than no publicity at all. So take that uh, uh, as you want. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not. You mentioned the, the the polling about only five percent of people notice it. So every month, populists do this thing where they they poll every week, asking people what's the news story they've noticed most, and then once a month they write a piece of a red box and they sort of pull it all together. And I think part. So actually, the question is, which is the story you've noticed most, which is you know unprompted, and people can sort of mention everything. And from our point of view, the site depressing thing: about a fifth of people say they've ne- haven't noticed anything. Anti-Semitism have been there consistently, as sort of five percent. And part of me thinks that doesn't mean people haven't noticed. And it's gone on for so long. There's a risk of it being priced in or whatever the phrase is. But I think I, I thought that some of the reaction to it from the sort of Corbyn side was slightly missing the point that A, people were noticing it, unpo- some people were noticing it unprompted. But it's gone on for so long, it's just sort of in people's minds. But are the people who are noticing it unprompted the people who would ever have voted for Jeremy Corbyn anyway? Yeah, possibly. And that's, you know, and there is this argument that during the election campaign last year, there was all the talk of. You know his links with the IRA and all of that, and that doesn't work. People don't even remember the IRA yeah. when they're kind of you know twenty two years old, and they're voting for, you know for maybe the first time. But taking a step back from the real <coughs> politic of it, the the Jewish community in Britain has a long, well studied history of being part of the part of the Labour movement uh, and the solidarity um, that's inherent within that. And it's just it's the worst thing that I've seen as a Labour Party member, as a former Labour Party staffer, to see the Jewish community feel that one, they can't vote for Labour, and two, that they, you know, you had the Chief Rabbi saying a lot of people wouldn't feel safe in this country if Labour elected. I think that that's something rising above the politics that's of it. We have, to, we have to do something about that. Are you, are you still a Labour member now? Yeah. Have you considered quitting the party? It's been the most difficult summer for me because you can disagree with the party's policies. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and people around him stayed in the Labour Party for a long, long time. They disagreed with a lot of policies. That's fine. But something like this is, is really goes beyond that. I'm really hopeful that the party will make moves to address that, but not just address it by bringing the IHRA to their disciplinary panels, by then listening to the Jewish community's concerns and acting upon them and showing that uh, we can do this in good faith. I think this is what's fascinating, though, is that so my business partner, Charlie, is a member of the Labour Party too, and he sits with his head in his hands over a lot of this stuff. Tribalism seems to be so deeply ingrained that people still feel that they won't let they're not prepared to give up their membership cards. And I think that's really interesting. And when I'm being mean to him, I slightly tease him and say, well, come on, you know, you're actually enfranchising this kind of behavior of a leadership that you don't support. But he's still not prepared to let go of his membership card. And I think that's really revealing about the psyche of quite a lot of the grassroots Labour members that they, you know, passionately are committed to the movement and that they're weathering this storm. Well, up next, we'll talk about what's going on at the Lib Dems. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, joined in the studio by Katie Perrier, Paul Ovenden, and this is Vanessa Pine. With the hard left tightening its grip on Labour and the hard right dictating to a Conservative Prime Minister, there are millions of voters in the centre ground of British politics looking for a moderate progressive party to call home. A year into the job, the question for Vince Cable is why those voters are not flocking to the Lib Dems. In my view, a dramatic investment in digital campaigning capacity is needed to spread the party's messages beyond Brexit. So Vanessa, you worked for Vince back when he was in government, a government he now pretends sometimes that he had absolutely nothing to do with uh, and made no decisions at all. Um, if you've been surprised by, by how he's a man that hankered for the leadership for so long, have you been surprised by how that's panned out? Well, I think um, Vince would say, you know, that a coronation is not necessarily a good thing for a leader. And he was the only person to sort of put himself forward after Farron resigned, simultaneously offending gays, Christians and liberals, which has got to be quite <laughs> quite the tri- trifecta. Um, but luckily, none of those have ever voted for the Lib Dems. So that, was, that was fine. It's a foundation year. You know, it's, he's only a year into the job and he's been um, doing some things behind the scenes. I'm thinking that there's widespread frustration about the lack of cut through, not just amongst the grassroots activists, but also in the press team and, and from Vince himself. And I think there are some reasons to be cheerful and I'm actually quite optimistic, sort of think preparing to talk to, to you about this today. I was sort of thinking, well, going to conference, what is there to look forward to? But for the last seven years, Lib Dems have sort of bumbled along in the doldrums in single figures in the polls and it's starting to increase. We, I started volunteering in 2004 when we had 60, you know, we've gone down from 62 to 12 MPs. The inheritance that Vince landed was sort of quite hollowed out party infrastructure. But in May, we had the best local election results we've had for 15 years. Um, and I think that's all moving in the right direction. I don't think it's moving in the right direction fast enough for anybody to be really excited about it yet. And what about Vince's idea? So he's doing, we're seeing him recording it on Tuesday, he's doing a speech at the end of the week setting out supposedly his vision for the reforms of the party um, can undergo quite why given that he's got a party conference and about 10 days after that why he doesn't do it at the party conference I don't know there's been a lot of speculation about his leadership the idea that he might set out when he might go even the idea that he wants to reform the party so a non-MP could be leader but is that is that a good idea is it not just the most damning criticism that he thinks that not only is he not up to it none of his colleagues in the commons are up to it either I think that's that's the unfortunate uh, interpretation and I think a lot there are definitely there have been self-inflicted wounds I think you know it's a bad idea to brief a speech two weeks out and not tell anyone what it's about because it naturally gives rise to a vacuum that obviously is going to be filled with speculation similarly not turning up to a key Brexit vote you know pretty much a known goal although there are you know reasons why that happened well he was off 
plotting with a plotting a new party. Well, I think he was it... given assurances that it wasn't going to be as close <laughs> as it was, but it's uh, you know nonetheless not good optics from a kind of press management perspective. I, mean, I just don't really understand. The Lib Dems aren't doing much else. Turning up and voting against Brexit seems like the only thing which is keeping them in the show at the moment. The fact that they weren't there for that vote, whether or not they thought they were going to win or lose. Luckily, not many people beyond you notice, I think. So, yeah. um, But yeah, it's, I think that's frustrating and that's why there is frustration. And, and I think to their credit, they understand that that's a challenge and they need to, to change the party structures. And that's what this reform motion is about, about the party leadership. I mean, I think Nigel Farage quite successfully led UKIP without ever being an MP. Sophie Walker leads the Women's Equality Party without being an MP. The current leader of the Green Party is not an MP. I think the timing and of the, of the motion coming out is unfortunate because it appears an implicit criticism of the current parliamentary party. But the idea that there are only you know, there are 12 Lib Dem MPs, two of them have held the job so that there are only 10 people in the country qualified to lead the Lib Dems is clearly nonsense. And I think what they're doing is putting in place reforms to try to make the party a more fit for purpose movement to, to, to speak to that broader central ground consensus, progressive, moderate um, uh, constituency that we know is there because we've identified that, you know, everybody is is has identified that when we were talking about it. Oh, I was thumbing through my uh, Lib Dem conference agenda, as I'm sure we, we've all been doing that, uh, the, the whole nation. It's quite big. Been. It's always big. They love, But they love a meeting and a vote and a, you know, a, a consultative debate. And um, We actually allow our party members to vote on policy, shockingly. Yeah, and look, look where that gets you in the election. <laughs> Um, no, but what struck me, I think on the Monday afternoon, the main speaker on Monday is Gina Miller, not mm. one of the current 12 MPs. The day before the leader of the party gives his big speech, there's been speculation that she's the one that's being lined up to fill this hole. Do you think that that's no, what's I don't, going hasn't on? She, I think she's ruled it out today. Well, lots of people have thought that. Well, why is she, speak, why is she the main speaker on a Monday afternoon at party conference? Probably because she's been one of the leading campaigners in favour of a people's vote and a second referendum, which is obviously party policy. I, I don't read into it what, what you read who, into is it. Is there anyone else in your dream case scenario who you think could fill that hole? What, my liberal wet dream? Yeah, who's your... Who's, who is it? <laughs> <laughs> who is it? <laughs> who is it who would be the, the Lib Dem leader? I pretty much have a man crush on the on the you know on the current one. I did work for him. Um, I don't. I think you know. Sort of joking aside, Vince is a serious economist, and we are facing a, a massive sort of economic crisis over Brexit. And it's yes, it's a boring dementor that draws all energy away from any other kind of political debate, but. Also, it's it's sort of the you know a serious man for serious times message. I don't think there's anything. I guess to go back to your point though, Vanessa. I guess he is a he feels a bit like an analog politician in the digital age. He is a serious <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, economist uh, as opposed to what people probably want. He's, which not, is probably he's a bit more like the yeah. Gina Miller kind of style. But your but your leader proves <laughs> that you don't have to be you know young and co- and hip and down with the kids for those people to vote for you and support you. And actually, I think. You know, the idea that that old men can't access or speak to the next generation is, is you know, has been proven And there was talk when Vince first became leader of sort of trying to Corbynise him a bit, you know, getting yeah. him on ironic students' T-shirts. and. From a total outsider's point of view, the, the thing that stands out most to me about that would have would have helped the Lib Dems this year would have been if that if that Sheffield Hallam by election had happened with the Jared Amir stuff. That would have changed the entire dynamic of the last year or so and, and as a as a victim of uh, Lib Dem by elections I I ran the comms in the Whitney by election 
that would have made such a big difference, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think that um, the point I made about digital is is that it doesn't necessarily have to be Vince who is the you know the poster child marketing influencer on Instagram, but actually that we do need to really seriously address the party's infrastructure in terms of digital campaigning because we have always had this reputation for being this amazing mm. grassroots operation that particularly in by-elections swung into force and, and had an incredible... Um, impact and we need a digital campaigning force that is equivalent to that now because the way that campaigns have evolved the way that media consumption is evolving we need to be able to sometimes bypass the illustrious publications such <laughs> as the Times who will not write about anything other than our headline policies uh, in order to speak directly to our base about the interesting ideas that we are coming up with. Going local uh, for the Liberal Democrats always works I've seen it on the ground they have forced to be reckoned with mm-hmm. and if you've got issues like fishing uh, in the southwest of the country or issues uh, around Brexit and not getting a fair deal after we, we leave the European Union in March next year then they are ripe for the picking for the Liberal Democrats just um, let's tie it all up then. At the beginning Katie you were talking about who was speaking for the stuff that you know you care about and why you're a member of the Tory party you know it's not a hardcore Brexit it's the bread and butter issues. Paul you're talking about whether or not there's going to be a split in the Labour Party and some of the MPs will go away. There's, you know, the, the Lib Dem, do the Lib Dems fill that void? Is there a new party that comes along? What do we think? How, do we, how does all this play out? Well, I think that... So I was sort of looking at the target seats for Lib Dems and about half of them voted majority for Brexit. So I don't think Lib Dems can win again without having a message that speaks to at least part of the Brexit constituency. And I think part of the problem of our narrative has been that we are, um, you know... At a crude level, our tendency is to call them stupid and racist, which isn't we, going to persuade anyone. Which Vince has basically done in the past. And I think that we need to be able to under- demonstrate that we understand the concerns of people who have been impacted by austerity, are worried about cuts to public services, and are are concerned about the increased pressure on those public services from immigration, and that we need to have a way of talking to those people. I think the thing about the new party and what happens more broadly than that is that the first past the post electoral system it sets a very high barrier to entry, and I've ticked the Lib Dem tick obvious box by talking about electoral being the first to talk about electoral reform sorry Um, but actually a new party or you know a new centrist movement still needs to get past that barrier to entry and so I think eventually what needs to happen is that Lib Dems evolve themselves which they are seeking to do under Vince's leadership so that more of that centrist coalition embraces them as the solution rather than comes up with a with a new party. And surely the most Lib Dem thing that's ever happened is the constant pleas to take over our party. We're right for entry. <laughs> I, I, I bet good money that between now and the party conference, we'll see Vince give several interviews, basically saying, you know, come on in, the water's lovely. There's always been, oh, people, are, I've been, I'm having conversations, people are about to defect. What, what about you, Casey? The thing is, the noisy ones will always do something. They will always, you know, whether or not they march down the street, whether or not they will, uh, you know, threaten things, they write on the front page of newspapers, whatever it might be. And the quiet ones that just want to get on with it don't really do things. And so that's why uh, I think the Conservative Party should be more interested in entryism than they are currently. Because, uh, you know, we've always been a broad church and you can always have room for both uh, within the party. But uh, membership numbers are all so low that it can easily be taken over. Mm -hmm. And we've seen what happened with the Labour Party when that happened. Uh, And you have a whole collection of moderate Labour Party MPs that feel that it's not their home anymore, but they're not going anywhere and they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, literally. Um, And I can see it happening to the Conservative Party too. Well, it's fascinating stuff and how the next, I think between now and Christmas, could be quite exciting. 
provided you're not in any of the parties geek. involved. <laughs> you're such a geek. <laughs> Normal people don't say if exciting. I can't, if, look, if, you're, if you're still listening to this podcast, you, um, I suspect you're going to find it exciting as well. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. And if you are finding it exciting, you haven't yet signed up to my morning email. I find it hard to believe, but it's, uh, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my thanks to Katie, to Paul, to Vanessa, and for me, Matt Jolly. It's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.